The preaching of God's Word then is found in Luke and chapter 15, there at verse 8. Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. This represents the second of three parables that Christ, in essence, joins together to convey a, a common or united truth. And so that there are nuances to each of these three parables, they join together to show something of the rejoicing of God over a sinner that repents. And so as last week, we considered the lost sheep of the ninety and nine remaining, and the rejoicing over the finding of that one which was lost, so now we hear of the lost piece of silver. Luke fifteen eight through 10 Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle, and sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. These three verses again carry on the same truth earlier presented and, of course, is united with that which follows of the two sons and particularly that prodigal son who is brought to repent and turn again to his father in heaven. You'll notice there's something of an emphasis in this regarding the diligent seeking and again the joyous rejoicing not only of the woman who finds the piece of silver but with her associates. She calls her neighbors together, verse 9, to rejoice, which is purpose to display something of what takes place in heaven. Christ says, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. This, of course, is countering the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes. Verse 2, they murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Last week we attempted to show that Christ was not just having some common and careless fellowship with sinners, but rather, as the text testifies, these drew near for to hear him. They were learning from him. They were turning from their sins. In essence, they were repenting. They repented of what they had been doing and what they were and were submitting themselves as disciples before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees only looked upon this gathering as that which in their mind displayed Christ's false claim to be a teacher of God's Word. And so Christ, through these parables, is countering that false understanding. And He does so again in these three verses. Notice in the text, He presents this parable, a woman who has ten pieces of silver. Now, it's hard to equate what the worth and value of currency in any generation long ago would be today, but you can get some understanding when you think of what was the purchasing power of such a piece. The purchasing power of such a piece varied from this place to that place, but with one such piece of silver or drachma, you could buy a sheep and in other places a whole ox, which in our day may not sound all that significant, but in the days of uh, Christ's living and in the ancient days, this was significant indeed. One could live upon such things. It was important to have such livestock to live upon. And thus we see the diligence that is evidenced by this woman. She loses one piece. It's not like losing a penny. It's not like losing a dollar. It's losing a tenth of your estate. That's significant. You can think of it this way. If you had a grand sum total to your net worth of $100,000, $10,000 of it goes missing. That's like you losing your car. That's all of a sudden, you wake up in the morning and your car is vanished. You wouldn't say, not a big deal. This would bring from you a diligent searching of that 
important piece. And so the woman, notice, she is diligent in her seeking for it. How is that described? She lights a candle and sweeps the house, literally and figuratively. She's sweeping away everything. She's sweeping with her eyes all around, and so on. In the military, in the barracks, there's still a standing practice at times of cleaning up the grounds of uh, that uh, place. And soldiers will line themselves up, and they'll walk, looking, scanning all of the area to pick up anything that doesn't belong. And this is the idea. She's turning over everything. As we say, she's leaving no stone unturned, sweeping the house and seeking, notice the language, diligently. The word is the idea of carefully. She has care and focus. She's not sort of carelessly going around. If you have children or know anything about children, you might tell them to go and clean their room. And what do they do? Well, they go in their room, if not with guidance from their parents, And they sort of look here and look there, and then they find stuff to play with. They're playing with those things. They're not carefully looking through and asking the question, what is this? Where does it go? How can I put it away? But this woman is diligent. She's going over everything. And notice, she finds, she discovers. And so what does she do? She doesn't just say, great, I found this. She broadcasts it to her neighbors, come over and rejoice. You can think of it this way. If in our church someone had their car stolen, and that would elicit from us prayer, Lord, help our brother or sister. And if it were found, it wouldn't wait for a long passage of time. There would be communication sent. Brothers and sisters, rejoice with me. The Lord has restored this helpful resource. Well, Notice Christ isn't talking about cars. He's not even talking about pieces of silver. He's talking about sinners who repent. She finds it. She rejoices. She calls others to rejoice. And he says, importantly, verse 10, likewise, in the same way. Just like that, so this. Well, what's the this? I say unto you, There's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now here's the idea. Who is it that goes, seeks diligently, and finds? It's God. Particularly, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is here taking this upon Himself. Pharisees and and, and Sadducees and scribes and others, don't you see what's happening? I'm seeking the one that's lost. I'm seeking the one that's gone astray. And when I find that one, what does he say? There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. And so, in other words, he's likening himself to this woman who is of such rejoicing when one is found that he calls his others to rejoice with him. In other words, it's not just the angels rejoicing, it's God summoning the angels to say, Rejoice with me. In other words, what's going on here is not just an earthly testimony of what takes place in time, nor is it simply a testimony of what goes on in creatures. It's testifying of God's great delight over sinners that repent. It's giving us insight into His love. He loves sinners repenting. He rejoices, if we can say as much, in sinners repenting. And He summons others to rejoice with Him. And so this contrasts the Pharisees and scribes, right? They're murmuring. They're complaining. And He's saying how unlike it is that you are, in other words, to what the angels are doing. The angels of God are rejoicing with me that sinners have repented. Brethren, it raises a question in our mind, doesn't it? Is there such joy in us? Is there such desire in us to rejoice when sinners repent? Well, we wish to consider this morning not only the Lord's diligent seeking of the sinner, but the rejoicing over sinners that repent. Why is there such rejoicing in heaven over sinners that repent? Why is there such gladness 
over such things? Well, consider with me three things to help us. Firstly, to help us see why there is such rejoicing, consider the sinner's misery. That is what he's saved from. Secondly, the Savior's mercy. And lastly, the Lord's gladness. The sinner's misery, the Savior's mercy, and the Lord's gladness, which will help us both understand more fully this cause for rejoicing, but as the Lord would give us grace, would help us to rejoice as well. Well, firstly, then the sinner's misery. All of us, one way or another, have felt what we would call and describe as miserable. This can be from physical pain to emotional pain to relational pain to spiritual pain. Some have been in seasons cast upon the sick bed and would only be able to describe their experience as miserable. It doesn't deny the Lord's mercy and sustaining, but when we consider what our bodies are going through, how they're being ravaged by pain and aching and uh, other such things, we would say this is truly miserable. We aren't grumbling and complaining, but we're acknowledging a truth. This is difficult. If one has ever had a dear loved one who has been in great pain, They would say, though my body is not ravaged by the pain, yet my soul is racked in tortuous feeling to look upon one such that I love and to experience that way their misery. This is the idea of misery. Notice the sinner's misery. It's not fully disclosed here, but notice the text itself. It says this peace is lost. It's not where it ought to be. We remember that this is spoken of sinners. And so, remember that the opening of the chapter is that publicans and sinners came to hear him. The Pharisee said, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And this parable, as well as the other two, joined together to speak of one sinner that repenteth. A sinner is one who has purposefully gone off, who has said, I will not abide the cause of God. I will not submit to His law. What is sin? John tells us sin is the transgression of the law. It's looking at the law saying, no chance, don't want it, won't have it. That's what sin is. A sinner is one who has done that, looks at God's law and says, no, I don't want it. Now, they may quell their conscience by keeping up some pretended form so they're kept free of scandalous sins. But their inward desires are nonetheless breathing out lusts and desires contrary to God's law. This is what a sinner is. It's what offends the world when we say to them, let's be straight, you are a sinner. The world mocks it. The world laughs at it. The world ridicules it. And they think, oh, listen, it's not that big of a deal. It's a little drunkenness. It's not that big of a deal. It's a little fornication. It's not that big of a deal. It's a little idolatry. It's not that big of a deal. It's a little hatred. And you go on and on with these things. Look, I'm not all that bad because I can find 5,000 more people that are worse off than I am. But it neglects the essential point. A little, if they wish to call it that, sin, is still a conscious and deliberate pursuit of what is contrary to the will of God disclosed by His law. They are turning their back from God, to God rather, and they're leaving and walking in their own ways. It's rebellion. A little rebellion is rebellion still. A little treason is is treason still. A little disobedience is disobedience still. And what is disclosed to us in this is the lost peace is not one who is seeking to rediscover his safety. It's lost. This is to build up in our sense a sense of the misery of the sinner. They have willfully gone astray and are blind unto the fact of their misery. They call good evil and evil good. 
and they delight in it. And so when you see things, these public displays of sin, and you see smiles on their faces, that's a sincere insight to their thoughts. They really delight in sin. They really are thinking it's not sin. It's good. This is right. This is how the world should be. You can see the outworkings of that in our own culture when there are public sins that are being sought to be protected by law. And some, of course, which are protected by law. It's a real insight to the sinner. They are saying this lawlessness is good. To be abiding by God's law is bad. Brethren, this is the reality. You know, the world gets this in some sense. They look upon people with what is called eating disorders and they say it is bad. It's miserable to have this psychological, as it were, thought that I'm so distorted in my understanding that I'm going to eat my food only to vomit it back up. And so there's all sorts of dollars poured into industries to help people in one way or another who have this distortion. They're calling something bad good and good bad. Well, this is about cosmic significance. This is about one's relationship to God. This is the true misery that sinners who rebel against God consider their rebellion liberty. They consider their lawlessness freedom. And all the while don't realize that they are plunging themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into that abyss which shall spring up to undo them for all eternity. They're lost. They're lost in this life. Brethren, raise the question in your mind. What happens if they remain lost? You and I have people in our lives who are lost right now in this sense. They have rebelled against God. But if they remain in that state, one day they'll come to see the wicked error that they've committed. They'll see that their course was wicked. They will gnash their teeth at it. It's not that they will say in their minds, oh, I love the right way now but they will not be able to escape the fact that they are convinced, persuaded, and shown that their rebellion was wicked. And this, brethren, for all everlasting of their conscience, which is does not die. It ceases gnawing, eating, as we could say, thriving to inflict that self judgment and condemnation upon their consciousness and the torment of the flames of fire eating their flesh and yet their flesh never being devoured. This is the conscious reality of all lasting eternity for the impenitent sinner. This is the misery of the sinner. And when it is that that is understood, we can understand why there is joy in heaven when one such sinner repents. It's not only because they are delivered from torment, it's also because they are delivered from rebellion. That's significant. God's angels rejoice to see God's name honored. God's people rejoice to see God's name honored. What we long is not only to see sinners delivered from the wrath to come. We do desire that. We also desire to see sinners delivered from their rebellion to submit in faith and repentance unto God. And the angels who delight in the same rejoice. Why? Because the misery is not only that which is to come, the misery now is. And so when a sinner repents and says, what have I been doing? I've been calling good evil and evil good. And now they turn to God. God is being honored. And the angels exist to honor God. And so they delight to see His name praised. It is the both and of repentance. The sinner is delivered from his sin and the sinner is delivered from his punishment. 
And in context, this means the Lord is now honored by the one who had gone astray. It brings glory to God. Brethren, think of it this way. In heaven, what will be disclosed is not the praises of men. There's not going to be this, well, let's talk now about so-and-so and all of the great things they did, and let's give glory to that man or that woman or whatever else. But rather, it's always in context of, let's see what God did in so-and-so's life. Let's see how He redeemed them, how He gave them repentance. In other words, it brings us back to consider the work of God. The sinner couldn't bring himself back. But Christ pursued them and delivered them from their misery. Notice then, secondly, the Savior's mercy. The word mercy has to do with compassion. It is that disposition of one's heart that is attracted to those in misery and seeks to relieve them. That's what mercy is. We sometimes think of mercy in a very small manner of just the uh, giving of something that's undeserved or the withholding of judgment that is deserved, those kinds of ways. But the biblical notion of mercy is far broader, includes those things. But fundamentally, mercy is that disposition of kindness toward one in misery. And so Christ is often called upon, Jesus, the Son of David, have mercy on us. What's, he say, what's being said? Look at our misery and be kindly disposed toward us. We read in Ezekiel 13, you could read the same in the earlier chapter of Ezekiel, and you see this testified. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he should repent, that he should turn. There's a disclosure of what God rejoices in. He rejoices in showing mercy. And so look how it is that of our Savior it's written by comparison. The woman is one who lights a candle and sweeps the house. Literally, the idea is lighting a lamp. You've seen this picture, of course, before of this lamp that's carried and the flame is out of the tip. That's what she's doing. She's getting down and she's looking earnestly everywhere for it. She's sweeping everything out of the way in order to find this lost piece of silver. And Christ is said to be like this woman. She's one who sought diligently. Christ is one who seeks diligently. It is, of course, parallel to what he's already said with reference to the one who lost one of a hundred sheep. And so what did he do? Verse 4, he left the ninety and nine in the wilderness and he went after that which is lost. And when he hath found it, he layeth on his shoulders rejoicing. And so there's a testimony of the pursuit of Christ to lost sinners. Christ seeks them. How does he seek them? Well, we can say he does so personally in that the person of the Son of God took upon himself the nature of humanity. So we can speak in terms that are difficult to begin to understand fully, but the Son of God came to earth. It's not that he left heaven absolutely according to his divinity, but he manifests his nature here in joining to himself Humanity. He's the God-man, the Word which was in the beginning, who was with God and is God, did take to himself human flesh. Hebrews tells us that he didn't take to himself the nature of angels. He took to himself the nature of the descendants of Abraham. Man's nature, yes. A Jewish man's nature in particular. And was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. This is one way that Christ seeks the lost. We can say it that he pursued us in his earthly ministry. And how did he do so? Well, we see it, of course, in his earthly ministry and gathering sinners to himself, but preeminently we see it when it is that he pursues unto the end that which would secure the salvation of the sinners for whom he give his life. He's fulfilling all that's required. And he's offering up himself as an atonement, a sacrifice by which blood he should save them. He personally has pursued sinners. 
in loving us, the Father gave us His Son. And His Son willfully came and did do all of these things so recorded. But just as He did in His earthly ministry, so He does today by His ministry that continues, that is, by His Word. It's a beautiful picture that is given to us on occasion in the Scriptures, Psalm 45, the book of Revelation, several places, that the sword of God proceeds from the mouth of Christ Jesus. It's His Word, right? It's a strange picture to think of a sword coming out of one's mouth, but it's to indicate that the Word of Christ is that weapon He uses to subdue people unto Himself. He employs it to the seeking and the finding and the saving of sinners. And so you can see this again and again in the Scriptures. He goes and He speaks a word and people believe. What's happening? He's employing His Word to accomplish His end. And when He ascends to heaven, He commissions His disciples to do what? Well, go and talk to them about the inner light. No, He says, go and teach them what sort of things I've commanded you. Take My Word with you. My Word must be central. My Word must be employed. And as you do, I will build up My kingdom by this Word. And we see it in history beyond the Scriptures that God claims His chosen ones by His Word. He pursues them with His Word. Circumstances and uh, varieties may exist in our own experience. Perhaps for a brief season we're being pursued and convicted. Other times for long seasons we're being pursued and convicted. But there is a unity common to all such believers that He pursues us by His Word. This is why historically the church in its seasons of strength have ever emphasized the Word of God. This is why catechisms and confessions have ever emphasized the Word of God. This is why preachers have ever emphasized the Word of God. Paul says to Timothy, preach the Word. He doesn't deny the usefulness of the form of sound words. He actually gives them their warrant. There's not to be this, well, if it's not the literal Word of God, then it's unhelpful. If it's the form of sound words, it stands as useful to us because it's helping us get our mind around it. But central to all of the advance of God's kingdom is the Word of God. It's that which He uses to draw us to Himself. Sometimes in the church today, there's this thought, well, children can't understand God's Word. Well, brethren, what elite academic can understand God's words fully? There's no one in this world who would be able to say, you know what, Genesis through Revelation, I've got it, give me something new. There's always a depth and a new insight to the wonder of the revelation of God's inscripturated Word. The fact that there are some things, as Peter says, difficult to understand, does not deny the centrality of the Word for the Christian's life. It begs, of course, the question, in our families, in our own souls, in our reaching out to others, is the Word central? If you were a soldier in previous generations, you would think to yourself, what do I need in order to go to war? And among other things, you would need your sword. In fact, you would fear going into war without a sword. Just as the modern military man would take his weapon, so ancient military tactics required a sword. Brethren, we go without the single weapon that will reclaim sinners when we blunt the edge and hide the sword. We need God's Word Central. That's the means by which Christ pursues sinners today. And it's a merciful seeking. It is His pursuing of sinners with this, that He would call sinners to Himself by His Word still. But notice His mercy is likewise shown in His finding. He's shining the light of His Word upon dark places. And He discovers it. But what does He do that all the more shows his mercy. He finds it and he rejoices over it. He seeks to find. 
Brethren, if a believer, think of this, Christ has swept the house of the world and with the light of His Word has pursued to find you. He pursued you, though you were lost. He pursued you, though treasonably rebellious. He pursued you, though you called what was good evil and evil good. He pursued you. And in pursuing you, by His grace, He joined His power and found you to make you willing in the day of His power. This is His mercy. It's not like He comes and He finds and He says, well, it's up to them. He comes and He finds and He grabs them. He says, I will make you willing. And so those pictures that some perversely display of God that says, well, He violates men. No, even as the Scriptures indicate, our own confession and catechism display as well in summarizing these things, He makes them willing. He shines the light and gives them a new nature that makes them willing. This is the significance of the new birth. You must be born again. There must be a new nature planted in you so that in seeing, hearing the Word of God come forth, you're made to embrace the Word, to enter into the kingdom of God by faith. Why does that come to pass? It's because the Savior in mercy and compassion is coming, pursuing, not only by His Word, but by the power of His grace to bring them unto salvation. In other words, it is a testimony of a perfection of the Savior. When we think of the Savior, we thought of this on Wednesday, that we are dis- the emphasis is to be on Christ and Him crucified. It is a display of Himself, a display of His work, of His love, of His holiness, of His righteousness, which then gladdens our hearts, which causes us to rejoice. And when we see a sinner repenting, what we see there prior to, and indeed the cause of this repentance, is the Savior's mercy. We're glad for that sinner that's repented. We rejoice in that sinner that's repented. But our joy is all the more full because it's the display of the wisdom and mercy of God in saving that sinner. God be praised! He's had mercy again. He's shown grace again. It's not to deny the rejoicing over that sinner, but it is to put in context why there is such rejoicing over that sinner. Because God Almighty has found it His pleasure in mercy to seek and to find that which was lost. It's a testimony of the grace of God. And nothing elicits more praise from God's people in earth or even as Revelation shows in heaven, than the display of the glory of His grace to us. Yes, we indeed will praise God for the display of His justice and in His of sinners and so forth. But the whole lot of Scripture does display again and again the all-passing wonder of His love to save sinners. In fact, Paul tells us this, that vessels of wrath prepared beforehand are in order to show to the vessels of mercy just how great His mercy is. In other words, it's right for us to say, God be praised. The damned are damned to the glory of God. But we miss something, if that's all we think of. If you have ever purchased from a jeweler a diamond or some precious stone, there's the black cloth that's often used to highlight the beauties of that stone. And so the black cloth has gotten out and light is shining upon that diamond perhaps. And the blackness helps highlight the beauties of that stone. It takes away and by contrast, it shows forth all the more the excellence of that stone. Now think of this, young men or men who have gone through this process. If you went to the jeweler and said, listen, I'm engaged, 
or I've been married for some time, I want to get something precious for my wife. And you go, and the jeweler says, great, here's all the stones and so on. Oh, I'd like to look at that. And they say, okay, let me help you see this more fully. And they get their velvet piece out or their dark cloth out, and they show it. And you say, put the stone away. I want to buy the cloth. The jeweler would look at you and say, you know what, this is ridiculous. And anyone in there would think of you as ridiculous. And your wife or uh, uh, soon-to-be wife would think you utterly ridiculous if you brought to her the black cloth and said, look what I've got you. The purpose of the black cloth is to show the perfection, the beauty, the glory of the stone. The purpose, think of this, the purpose of the damnation of the lost is in one way to disclose the glory of His grace to those whom God has chosen unto salvation. It may cause us to wonder at it. It may cause us to say, was there a different way? We're not to complain against God, but rather to consider this. In my rebellion, I deserve to be one of the wailing voices in hell forever. In my sin, I deserve nothing but the tortuous reality of agony forever. And justly so. In my treason, I deserve to have been consigned unto damnation for all eternity. But God, who is rich in what? In mercy. For His great love wherewith He loved us hath quickened us together in Christ. By grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift, the gift of whom? Of God. What is being said? You deserve this damnation. And the saints in heaven know they deserve this damnation. They realize they've sinned against God, but they attribute their salvation not to their great wisdom, not to their great skill, not to their pastor's skill, and so on, but they attribute it all to Christ. Worthy is the Lamb. There's a delight in the mercy of God disclosed and applied unto us that singly focuses our attention upon Christ and we praise Him. You know what the angels do? They do the same thing. Because they know more fully than you and I right now know that sin deserves, it automatically deserves eternal perdition. Because they have some of their own kind who have no hope, are reserved right now in chains of darkness to the day of damnation that they shall experience. And they wonder at this. With a different creature, God is determined not to damn the whole of those who sinned, but to magnify His mercy in saving a chosen people. And how does He do it? It's not that He just turns the light switch on and they're saved. He sends forth His Son to seek and to save that which was lost both in His personal incarnation and ministry as we saw, and by His Word, and in seeking, He finds. And this caused an eruption of praise to God. Lastly, the Lord's gladness. When those we love are happy, we ourselves rejoice. A spouse looking upon the other when that other is pleased and glad, that spouse is made glad. A parent, when looking upon their children with smiles, is brought to find all of a sudden a smile on their face. And so it happens even in this world. We can think of it in a number of ways. We understand why the angels rejoice. They see God rejoicing. But ask yourself this for a moment. Why is it that God rejoices. God rejoices because one He loves is saved. This is deep, if at all, exercised in God's Word. This is the wonder that John brings us to consider. In this is love, not that we loved God. He's not saying there's no love in our love to God. He's saying that's not really a deep display of love. It makes sense that you and I should love God. In this is love, not that we love God, but what? That He loved us. 
Brethren, the Lord with sincerity has set His love upon His chosen people. And when He sees them brought out of the misery of their sins, when He sees His Son seeking and finding them, yes, He is glorified in the manifestation of His grace and salvation. But He is sincerely rejoicing because one He loves is brought to salvation. Parents, you understand this. It's not a parent that needs to understand it alone. All of us understand it if one we love is in a desperate position. Imagine this for a moment. Your loved one, whatever it, whoever it is, spouse, child, parent, sibling, it doesn't matter. They say, listen, I'm going on a trip and I'll be back next week and so forth. And in the midst of that span, you get a phone call and it's someone from the hospital saying, your husband, your child, your spouse, your uh, parent is, has been in a horrible accident. They've been air evacuated to a hospital and they're in a coma. You physically are uninjured, but you have tremendous love for this one who is injured. And you instantly set aside everything else. Why? Because there's a bond of love to the one who's in misery. And if in the mercy of God, that one who is in misery is brought out of that misery, what happens? You rejoice. Because there's a real love to the one who's now been brought out of misery. Here's the point. The woman doesn't say, you ought to rejoice because it's merely a good thing that I found this. It shows my diligence and so forth. The woman says, rejoice with me. What does that mean? But that she has to be rejoicing. And Christ is likening the woman unto Himself. I'm like that woman. I've pursued out of love these sinners. I'm rejoicing that I've found this sinner and have brought them unto salvation. What's being disclosed in heaven is not just the angels rejoicing, but joy in the presence of the angels of God that God Himself is rejoicing in the sinner that repents. And so the Pharisees and the scribes who prided themselves on being the spokesmen of God, who prided themselves on being those who led others to know God, are shown to be unlike God because they murmured at sinners being brought to Christ, whereas God Himself is summoning the angels saying, Look what I've done! And look how those I've loved have been brought to life. It's a disclosure of the love of God toward His people whom He has saved. We'll see it again when in verse 22 the Father says to the servants when His prodigal has come home, bring forth the best robe and put it on Him. And He says, likewise in verse 32, it was meat, it was fit, It was appropriate that we, not just they, but we, including myself, should make merry and be glad. Why? Not because the scandal of my name is erased, but because this thy brother was dead and is alive again. God sincerely loves His people. It's not just the display of His glory. We can't divorce and sever them. He displays His glory in the display of His sincere love to His people and bringing them to salvation. It's a both and connected together with ties and cords that cannot be severed. The Lord is glad and rejoices over His people with songs of deliverance. Brethren, we can apply this in a number of ways. One, we ought to see something here. We cannot say with, certain, with certainty, but we can say that notice that those who are in their sins have this as their only hope, that Christ would seek and save them. And so if a sinner, whether child or adult, sits and says, well, I'm in my sins, what am I going to do? It's right, of course, to say, what would the Lord have me to do? 
And we would say things like, well, you ought to read God's Word. You ought to attend God's worship. You ought to speak with those whom God has appointed. You ought to read good books. You ought to listen to good things. You ought to be seeking and cutting off certain activities. And all of that's right. But we also need to say to them this. Let's be frank. Except Christ seeks and saves you, none of that will amount to anything. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He had people in his congregation who after a more rigorous way than we can imagine were able to say, for 30 years I've sought the Lord and He's not saved me. What that means is this, to put it in practical ways. They never missed a Sabbath service. Never. They were on the weekday services always. They always held family worship. They were always reading God's Word. They were avoiding taverns of drunkenness. They were cutting off certain sins of speech and blasphemy. And they brought to Jonathan Edwards this complaint. They grumbled against God that, listen, for 30 years I have been cutting off sin and God hasn't saved me. You know what Edwards' comment was in return? Why should God save you for 30 years of sin? You say, what does that mean? He's making a point. In the unregenerate seeking of God, what are they doing? They're still sinning. They may be reading God's Word, but they're reading it wrongfully. They may be outwardly conforming, but inwardly they're still a mess. They may be outwardly doing these things that on the surface look good, but they're still without trust to God, without sincere love to God. His point is this. Though in one way you can be said to be seeking God in the outward performance of duties, you are, as we read in Ezekiel 33, those who come near to hear God's Word and yet do it not. Because God's Word in the Old and New Covenant has always demanded the outward and the inward conform to His law. And so Edward's point is plain. It actually removes this sort of complaint against God that people will bring forth. If God does not seek me, if Christ does not save me, I will not be saved. This brings forth rightly an air of desperation in the sinner. It ought to. And it ought to bring an air of desperation to the Christian who has sinners that they seek. It ought to make us say, whatever sermon I send them, whatever book I give them, whatever word I speak to them, however much I pray, if Christ does not seek them, they will remain justly, righteously, and to the praise of God left in their sins. But brethren... Christ is the one who seeks. This supplies us a great argument before the throne of grace. Oh Christ, it's true. Unless you seek them, they'll never be saved. But you've accounted it as a great glory of yours that you even leave the ninety and nine to seek the one who has gone astray. I command you not, for who am I? but dust and ashes to command the Lord of life. But I make my plea, Lord, be merciful to me. One I love is in misery. Lord, have mercy upon me, my child. Lord, have mercy upon me, my spouse. Lord, have mercy upon me, my own soul. Lord Jesus, Thou Son of David, have mercy upon me. What would You that I would do to You? Lord, that I would see What did Christ do? Well, that's nothing. You know, come back when you have something more serious. He gives them sight. If we are persuaded not only of His sovereign work, but of His merciful disposition, it will summon the strength of our souls in prayer onto the throne of grace to beseech Him for the exercise of that mercy. And someone says, but it's only prayer. Well, in one sense you're right, but never forget Prayer is the ordinance of God. God means by which He affects His ends. The Word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. These three, the preeminent means, so that 
when people unite in prayer, there's to be great encouragement. Lord, you're at work employing the means. What would the soldier think if he saw his general girding himself, getting his sword, sharpening it and everything else? This man of war would say, we're on to a new battle. And when the church, strengthened by God, begins to pray, what should we be saying but our king is out to conquer? Is it possible that so many remain in their sins under the sovereignty of God because people are not moved to pray? We don't mean by that. That listen, if we pray, then God sovereignly would dictate something. We mean by it this, that when God determines to save, He employs His means. And so we ought to pray, make us a praying people. Because by that means, He begins to seek because He's determined the end and the means to use. Finally, to those who have been found, you've trusted Christ. But see in this that the way that you were brought to trust Christ was because Christ sought you. Christ pursued you. Christ found you and rejoiced over you. Ascribe all, every last part of your salvation to Christ. It's what the saints do. Worthy are you. But brethren, can we say this further? You're supposed to reflect Christ. If to reflect Christ, surely you ought to be seeking loss as well. You ought to be speaking words in season. You say, well, I'm not a minister. No, you're not. You might say, I'm not an elder. Maybe you aren't. But as a Christian, you have myriad ways that you can employ to bring, as it were, by God's grace, others to be found by Him. Your homes can be scenes of purposed seeking of the lost. We don't mean by this what many do by compromising, saying just become like they are. We mean by this a purposed bringing of others to hear of Christ. You say, well, I might invite them. They might not come. They might not come. But let that not be the cause for your never inviting them. You might say, well, I have invited them. They haven't come. Be so. But pursue them still. There may be those who reject and refuse. That's true. But God gives us the promise that there will be those who receive and embrace because Christ will pursue them. Is your home the scene of such outreach? Is your mouth, as it were, the mouthpiece of such a message? Is your hand the ready provider of literature to those passing by? Is your prayer closet full of petitions with names before the throne of grace? Much may be done. Brethren, we can say it this way. Much must be done for Christ who has determined to save will save by the means of of His people making Christ known. By God's grace, may it be so. Would you stand with me for prayer?